Uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 tonight, looking at the church at Pergamum. We sort of started a little bit with that church last week, and the fact that uh, this church was located in a real satanic stronghold, and I think that's what it means when it says, this is where Satan lives, that this was a center of satanic worship and a real satanic stronghold, and we're going to see those some encouraging things, even in the midst of that tonight. And before we get started tonight in our study, um, let's open up with the word of prayer, and we'll ask the Lord to help us again tonight. Our Father, we just thank you again so much for this opportunity we have to be here at your, uh, your place that you have designated for us here at Cornerstone, and just to open up your word once again tonight and just look into it, and we pray uh, most of all that your Holy Spirit would ultimately be our teacher and Father, that you would just illuminate our minds and just help us to understand the things you would have us to understand from this passage of Scripture tonight. Most of all, Lord, we just pray that your glory would just be revealed in a new and a fresh way. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Do you think purgatory came from that? Pergamum? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, in Revelation 2.12, Jesus again is the author. And as I've shared with you before, he's writing to the churches because he wants his church to know truth. And he wants his church to be aware of things that, that they're doing well, but also some things that they need to be correcting. And Jesus is always in the midst of his church. He always has perfect knowledge of what's going on in the church and, and what needs to be done. And so he's not only the author of these messages, he's the answer to every need that the church has. He is the head of the church, the Bible says, and we need to look to him for the wisdom that we need, and for the guidance that we need. He is the shepherd. And uh, so that's sort of where we're back to even in the book of Revelation. As the glorified Christ, he's saying to his church, listen to what I'm telling you. And of course, as we've been studying these messages to the churches, you've noticed that he says at the very end of all these messages, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He wants us to, to listen to what he's saying because it is so important. And we start off tonight because you'll notice there in chapter 2, verse 12, that again he describes himself like he did back in chapter 1 as the one with the double-edged or sharp double-edged sword. And I wanted to write this verse down because when we studied this in chapter 1, I shared with you that what that symbolism was talking about was the fact that God's word is going to be what judges, Okay. And the verse that, that really backs that up is John 12, 48. It's really a support of this concept of the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth because it is going to be his word which does the judging. And in John 12, 48, this is what Jesus says. The one who rejects me and does not accept my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him at the last day. That's why throughout the book of Revelation, when you see Christ pictured with this sharp double-edged sword, or the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, it is simply a picture of the fact that judgment will be according to his word. So there again, going back to how important it is that we respond to his word, instead of rejecting his word. Those who reject his word will be judged by his word. All right, And uh, so that's why you see that symbolism throughout the book of Revelation. Now he goes on, in verse 13, to say, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. And again, going back to that, I believe that this was a real satanic stronghold here. Yet notice what he says. Yet there's a few of you there in Pergamum 
who continue to cling to my name, and you have not denied your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed in your city where Satan lives. Now, a couple things. First of all, what this verse teaches us is this. The principle of the Christian life is not escape. It is endurance and conquest by faith. In other words, what Jesus is saying is even in the midst of this satanic stronghold, the environment was not pretty. It was not good. It was not conducive to living for Christ. But Jesus says, you still have a few of you who are persevering. You are living a godly life in spite of the fact you are living in a city that is Satan's stronghold, Satan's headquarters. And so it just reminds us that Sometimes God doesn't want us to flee from where he has us. It may be a tough environment, but God may want us there, and through his grace and by his help, we can endure and we can see victory even in the midst of a terrible environment, if you will. It may be that God may want you to move, but it may be that God wants you to stay at least for a while because he wants you to be a witness in that very terrible environment. Because it's not the outward environment that can affect us if we don't allow it to. Remember, Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what comes out of a man, because out of man's heart proceeds fornication, adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, yada yada, all these sins. Because it's man's heart that is corrupt. Now, if you put the heart of man into a bad environment... And, and he is not staying strong in his relationship with God, certainly that bad environment can lead him away, all right? And so these people, one of the things that we know about the few who were living for Christ in Pergamum, is they had an awful strong relationship with their Lord. Because they were living in a, an environment where there would have been temptation after temptation after temptation. And yet Jesus says, yet you continue to cling to my name and you've not denied your faith in the midst of this bad environment. So that's an important principle to remember. God doesn't always want us to escape. Sometimes he's going to call on us to endure, to stick it out with his help, always, with his enablement, with his grace, and to see some victories. Uh, even in the midst of a terrible environment. The other thing I wanted to point out was this guy Antipas was a martyr. His, his name means against all. That's what the word Antipas or the name Antipas means, and he literally stood against all. Uh, he was one of those guys that he knew what he believed and why he believed it, and he was convinced that Jesus was the Christ, and, and nobody was going to back him down from that, and he gave his very life. He was martyred, he was killed in the city of Pergamum for his faith. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for his faith in Christ. And uh, so Jesus here is commending this, this remnant, this small group of people in Pergamum who are, you know, clinging to his name in the midst of this bad environment. But there's something else I want to bring up before we move on, and I'm going to open it up for questions and comments here in just a minute. And that is, he does use an interesting word in verse 13 for live. It's a word that means to settle down and be sort of comfortable. And so I wanted to bring that up because there's really two different ways of doing it throughout the Bible. The Bible teaches, for instance, and I'm going to use them as an example. I think they're a good example from the Old Testament. You have Lot. And the Bible says in the book of Genesis that Lot 
settled and got very comfortable in Genesis there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he settled down and abided and became very comfortable in that environment. Abraham, on the other hand, the Bible says, never settled anywhere. <laughs> in fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says he lived in tents most of his life. Because instead of settling down, he had that pilgrim or that sojourner mentality. And the Bible then says to us that that's sort of where we need to go. We need to be like Abraham. Don't be like Lot. Don't follow Lot's example. He settled down and he became very at home and very comfortable in Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, we know what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. But he became very comfortable there and he settled down. It was like, oh, this is my home. And what God is telling us throughout his word is that really we've got to keep that pilgrim mentality throughout our life. We can never really feel totally at home here because this really is not our home. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.1 to set our affection on things above, not things on the earth. That's why Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We've got to have that pilgrim and that sojourner, just a temporary resident, and we're just sort of passing through, okay? We don't settle down at any time throughout our walk here on this earth. So that was Lot and Abraham. And I wanted to bring that up because, again, the word live there really implies that some of these people in Pergamum, even though they claim to be followers of Christ, really began to feel at home. And that's really a sad comment here because they began to feel at home in Pergamum, which is where Satan lives. And let's not forget what the Bible says. The Bible says of Satan that he is the god of this world. The Bible says of Satan that he is the prince and power of the air. And so, you know, this world is pretty much following, if, if you look at the world as a whole, they're following Satan's philosophy, they're following Satan's way of doing things, rather than God's way of doing things. Now, in the book of Revelation, we're going to see how God's going to turn that around. Okay, that's part of what we're going to be studying. But for right now, the Bible says that's not the way it is. In fact, that's why Satan could take Jesus when he tempted him and offer him all the kingdoms of the world. Because they were his to give. They're not Christ. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom, before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Okay? Christ's kingdom right now is in the hearts of those who believe in him who follow him. But Christ has not set up his kingdom on this earth yet. That's future. That's what Revelation is coming to talk about. And that's even where the Jews of Jesus' day had trouble recognizing him as the Messiah because in their understanding, when their Messiah came, he was going to throw off the Roman yoke. He was going to set up his kingdom here on earth right away. And this whole idea of this suffering Messiah who was going to go to the cross and be humbled and all of that, that just totally just blew them away. They, they couldn't deal with that. You know, they, they sort of were like some of us sometimes. We, we have our own way of wanting to look at something, and when we go to the Bible, we're trying to find proof text to, to, you know, sort of support what we believe instead of going to the Bible with a blank slate and saying, God, you speak to me, and, and if I have to change my theology a little bit, if I have to tweak you know, the way I look at things, I'm going to do that because I'm not going to go to the Bible with some preconceived way of thinking and then try to make my way of thinking fit in by using certain verses. And that's what the Jews did. Because obviously we know that the Old Testament taught a suffering Messiah. 
the Old Testament taught that when the Messiah would come, he was going to suffer and die. You can't read Isaiah 53 and other passages without knowing that the Bible taught a suffering Messiah, but they didn't like that part. So like the buffet line, they chose to accept certain things and reject certain things. And like I've said before, God's word is not a buffet where we can take what we like and throw away what we don't like. It's all there for us, and we've got to take it all in, you see. And that's why they had problems with that. So, those are the main things that I wanted to talk about in the first couple of verses there in verse 12 and 13. Did you guys have any comments or questions before we move on to verse 14? I have a question. Yes. So, so God made this earth, but he didn't make it to have it be the devil's or Satan's kingdom. Right. Right, I mean, his, his original intent, intent was to give it to Adam and Eve, enjoy perfect paradise. But see, the, the Bible teaches us, and this is where I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but if you want to read a, two great chapters in Revelation, read chapter 4 and 5 together. We're going to get there in a couple weeks. <laughs> a couple weeks. <laughs> no, we really are. Um, but what those fascinating chapters teach is that really there's coming a point in history where, in a sense, Jesus Christ is going to, to uh, take the title deed of planet Earth. Because what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is really that the Earth as it was intended, obviously when sin came into the picture, uh, again, under the sovereignty of God, but Satan sort of swooped in, and, and now he's the God of this world, because this world isn't what God ever intended for it to be anyway because of the entrance of sin. But what Revelation is going to teach us is that paradise, once again, is going to be regained. God's going to turn things around again. And that's part of what you see in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 when you see the Lamb, who is at the right hand of God the Father, take that scroll in Revelation chapter 5 and begin to undo the scroll. I believe that that scroll, partly, is the title deed to planet Earth where Jesus is, is, is going to get back and... and get back what was originally intended by God. And I, I know I'm going ahead of myself here, but I'll, I'll leave it. That's an excellent question. Excellent question. I mean, yeah, God is sovereign, and he's in complete control, as we see in the book of Revelation. But for a time, he's allowed Satan to have some dominion here underneath that control. And that's why the Bible says in Ephesians 2.2 and in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that the Bible refers to Satan as the god of this world and the prince and power of the air. Okay, Two very important titles for Satan in the Bible, in those, in those scripture references there. Any other thoughts? All right, there was a few. But now notice, in this church, what a mix of zeal for God and error at the same church. And you know what, really, when you think about it, you could sort of say the same thing today in churches, not so much that, but you know, you're going to have your really committed followers of Christ in a local church, and you're going to have those who just sort of are floating through, and their level of commitment isn't near what other people's level of commitment is. That, that's always been the case. You know, every believer in Jesus Christ, even in a local church, doesn't have the same level of commitment to Christ. Well, here, you have these people who, even in the midst of Satan's stronghold, man, they're sticking it out, and they're clinging to the faith. But then in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some people there who are following false teaching. And, of course, I don't want to go back through all that, but we talked about the dangers of false teaching from one aspect. We're going to talk about it from another aspect tonight. But he says, you have some people there who are following this false teaching of Balaam, 
who instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Now, I'm not going to take time tonight to go back into the Old Testament story of Balaam. If you want to, I certainly would encourage you to do that. You can just look up Balaam in your concordance or whatever, and it'll take you back to the Old Testament where Balaam did all this. But basically what the Bible is simply saying is, Balaam put a stumbling block before the people of, of Israel. And that just simply means that he was setting a trap and trying to tempt them to evil. And the Bible says they did. They began to eat food sacrificed to idols and they committed sexual immorality. Now some people say, what does eating foods committed to idols? Because idols nothing anyway. It's just a piece of wood or something. The problem is that when they would eat that food sacrificed to idols, there was always more to it than that. Usually sexual immorality. In other words, it was just... It was religious. Yeah, thank you. That's about the best way to say it. You know? Uh, in the name of religion, that's what it was. And so they would eat food sacrificed to idols. They would have orgies and whatever. And so he, it was just all sort of one thing. And he said, this, this shouldn't be amongst the people of God. The people of God should be distinct. We should be different. I mean, no, we're not going to be perfect but the people of God who say they love God and are following God, this should not be the, what characterizes our life. Then he goes on verse 15 and says, In the same way there are also some among you who follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, he says, repent. For if not, I'm going to come against you quickly and make war against those people. Again, what? With the sword of my mouth. Because I'm going to judge you by what I have spoken. You are not, you're not following my word. You are rejecting my word. Now, the reason why Christ is so adamant about the spread of false teaching is because, remember, we, we saw a couple weeks ago, there's a link between what I believe and the way I live. So if, if, I'm, if I'm thinking correctly, if I'm thinking biblically, if I'm thinking the way God wants me to think, then obviously my behavior is going to follow. But the flip side of that is true as well. If I get some false teaching in my life, if, I, if, I have, if I'm believing some lies... If, if I'm not thinking correctly, if I'm not thinking biblically, then it's going to show up in my life. It's going to show up in my behavior. And so that's why Jesus says we, we've got to cut this off, but we're not just going to cut it off at the behavior part. That's the symptom. Sort of like if you go to the doctor and the doctor treats you for symptoms of what's wrong without really curing what's really causing the symptoms, they're just going to come back again. And that's why Jesus is so great because God always goes to the real core of what the problem is and the core of the problem is this false teaching that these people are embracing. If they would reject the false teaching and begin to, to respond to God's truth rather than rejecting his word, then the behavior would begin to follow as they embrace his truth. Now, I want to point this out, how important it is. Keep your finger there in Revelation and go back to the book of 2 Timothy with me. To an epistle of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, beginning at chapter 2 and verse 16. And the reason why we've got to be careful about this is because false teaching, like anything else, is going to start eating into our lives individually and corporately if we don't put a stop to it. And I thought that the passage that came to my mind, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 16, is probably as good a passage as any to see how this, because Paul parallels the spread of false teaching with something that, you know, disease, that we can... So 2 Timothy, chapter 2, and I'm going to begin, actually, we, we could begin a little bit earlier, but I'm going to begin at verse 16. You could begin at verse 14, but I'm going to begin at verse 16. Avoid profane chatter, 
Because those occupied with it will stray further and further into ungodliness. Notice that. If we occupy ourselves with thing, with, with stuff that's not true, just, just man's opinions and all this, it's going to lead to ungodliness. It's not going to lead to godliness, and that's where the truth leads to godliness. So, and their message will spread its infection like gangrene. In other words, you don't just leave false teaching be. Because if you do and you don't do anything about it, it's not just going to sit there and do nothing. It's going to spread. It's going to spread and it's going to infect many, many, many people. Then he names two guys who were involved with the spread of this disease, this false teaching. Hymenius and Philetus are in this group, he says. Notice, they have strayed from the truth by saying that the resurrection has already occurred. Now, they're not talking here about the resurrection of Jesus. They're talking about the future resurrection that the book of Revelation talks about. And they're saying, hey, the resurrection's already taken place. The kingdom's here, and yada, yada, yada. And that's, that's the false teaching that they're spreading. And then notice what Paul goes on to say. Not only they have strayed from the truth by saying that the resurrection has already occurred, they are undermining some people's faith. Wow. You see, that's how dangerous false teaching is. And that's why you and I cannot let false teaching just go by without doing anything about it. Because the Bible teaches that false teaching is like gangrene. It's like a deadly disease. It will spread its infection. And if we let it go and don't do anything about it, other people are going to be infected. In fact, some people's faith could be undermined by the false teaching. It may not be your faith, but if anybody's faith is being undermined, it's dangerous. You know, uh, you know, some people say, well, Pastor Jeff, you know, I'm a mature enough believer that, you know, I can listen to people that, you know, they're, they're false teachers to a point or they don't, they don't do every, you know, they don't teach everything right. But I'm mature enough that I can chew up the meat and spit out the bones. And I'm like, yeah, that might be good for you, but there's some people that are going to choke on those bones and they're going to they're gonna have a spiritual death because they choke on the bones because they're not maybe as mature as you to be able to listen to false teaching and, and pull out some, some of the truth that the false teachers are saying, but the majority of it is stuff that should be spit out. We've got to be very careful about that. And that's what he's saying here. He's, Paul's saying some people's faith are being undermined because they're, they're believing these guys. Oh, you mean the resurrection's already passed? Oh, my goodness. And that just totally blew them away. And now, you know, I don't want to take time to teach on the passage in 2 Timothy, but you'll notice that in chapter uh, 2, verse 19, Paul said, however, God's foundation is sure. In other words, what he's simply reminding us of there is this. God doesn't change the way he thinks about something so that it's like a moving target and you just never know what you're believing or whatever. No. God has said what he, what he stands for and what his truth is all along, and he's never changed, he's never deviated from that. That's what it's always been, and that's why we can bank on it. That's why we can be settled on it. That's why we can stake our lives and our eternal destiny on it, because the foundation of God is sure. It's not something that changes with the wind of culture and what's politically correct and how people feel about it or don't feel about it. God just says, this is the truth. Deal with it. If you don't like it and you reject it, fine. But I'm telling you, if you reject me and my words, those same words are going to judge you one day. But if you embrace those words and you live by them, you're going to have a relationship with me and you're going to be blessed. It's up to you, but God's just saying, this is the way it is. But false teaching is very dangerous. And you notice, as we've went through this, 
these messages to the churches, how every one of them in some degree have some measure of false teaching in it. And that's why, you know, we've got to be very careful about what we teach and what we believe because it's not just, well, it, it just affects me. No, it doesn't just affect us. It affects other people too. That's why, I'll be very honest, when, when I'm in the mine on Tuesday night or the ladies' Bible study Wednesday morning or the singles on Sunday morning or the couples' Bible study Friday night or I'm speaking in the church on Sunday, I, I'm... Busy. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> There is, talking about a weight from Sunday's message, but there, there is a weight there because of just the awesome responsibility. Because I know, like for instance on Sunday, a couple thousand people are there on Sunday, and some of those people, eternal destinies could swing on what I say or don't say. That's a heavy responsibility. I mean, that's part of being, I mean, it's a great privilege to be a teacher of God's Word, but it's also a great responsibility. When you've got that, you know, you, you're sensitive to that, hopefully, as a teacher of the Word of God, just like I am here tonight. You know, you don't want to lead people astray because, you know, your walk with the Lord, you know, could be determined by something that I say. Now, I don't want it to be, and like I've shared with you before, I... I certainly don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to study the word of God for yourself and develop your own convictions. But still, I could be an inaccurate guy in the word of God, and I don't want to do that. That's how serious it is. I think that's why the Bible says in the book of James, be careful to, to desire to be a teacher of God's word. Not that we shouldn't desire that, but be careful. Because it is a great privilege, but it's also a great responsibility. And James chapter 3, verse 1 says to teachers of God's word that we will be held to a stricter judgment because of what we do. Because it is such a, an important thing that we do to handle the word of God. So that's why, all I'm saying here is not in a negative way, but that's all the more reason why we should have more people in the mind. More people in our Bible studies. More people in small churches and small groups and more people who are studying the Word of God at this church. Because the more we know the Word of God, the better off we're all going to be. And we're going to prevent ourselves from being maybe entrapped and living in, in uh, something that just isn't right and doesn't line up with the Word of God. Let me go back to the book of Revelation. I'm going to open it up again for... Because I'm almost done! Pergamum. See, we're, we're, I told you we're going to go about 15 miles an hour now. Instead of. <laughs> so then that's why in verse... Uh, 17, after in verse 16, he says, I'll fight you with the sword of my mouth, that the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the Spirit of God is ultimately the one that takes the Word of God and is, is teaching us and wanting us to get what Jesus here has said to the church. And certainly it's relevant and applicable to us today. Because the Bible says that if false teaching and false prophets were present back then, as we saw a couple weeks ago, they're only going to increase until the time of Christ. False prophets and false teaching will just continue to, to get more and more and more until the time of Christ. So all the more relevant and all the more applicable to where we are. Then I love this. To the one who conquers, he says, I will give him some of the hidden manna, I will give him a white stone, and on that stone will be written a new name that no one can understand except the one who receives it. Now as I've shared with you before in my study of the book of Revelation, at the end of each of these messages, he sort of is rewarding those who, who are going to be, you know, faithful to him. And uh, I'll be honest with you. I don't think anybody knows for sure what the hidden manna is. 
I don't think anybody knows for sure what the white stone really represents here. And I don't think anybody really knows for sure, obviously, what the new name is, because the Bible says we're not even going to know it until we get it, and then we're the only ones that's going to know what that really means. But I do want to say this from this passage. I think the encouraging thing from this verse of Revelation 2 is this, that when we get to heaven, notice there that Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of glory, the one that we're studying about in the book of Revelation, is going to be the one who personally rewards us. He says, I will give you that hidden manna. I will give you a white stone with a new name on it that only you and I know what that really means. I mean, talk about cool. I mean, it's not like we get up there to heaven and he's like this, excuse me, you know, this is the Santa Claus with this big bag and he just sort of throws out a bunch of rewards just willy-nilly and it's like they all land and we all start grabbing for rewards and stuff like that. And, no, first of all, the Bible teaches us that the rewards and things that God gives us in eternity will be perfectly personally suited to us. You see, not only does God personally suit his plan for our life to us, to the way he wired us and created us and gave us gifts and abilities, but the rewards and the things that we will get for living a Christian life for him are personally suited for us. I think that is so cool. And then, I think it's really neat at the end there of verse 17 where he says, and I'm going to give you a new name that only you and I will really know what that means. I, I think that's cool. It's like, again, please, I'm, I'm stretching it a little bit, but it's like, you know, when you're, when you, when you're dating or something or you're married, right, you, you sort of have a pet name. And, and you, you know what that pet name is for your spouse, but nobody else does. It's sort of something you call each other, but if you call that out in public, most people wouldn't know. Well, in a sense, Jesus here is saying, I'm going to have a pet name for you. I'm, you're, you're, you and I are going to get a new name for glory. And, it, you know, the only thing that I had to compare it to is this. It's like when Jesus went up and called his disciples and he says, you're Simon, but you're going to be Peter. You know, it's almost like whatever new name he gives us is going to be something that he's chosen specifically for us that's just going to fit us. And where, Again, I just think that is so cool because it shows, you know, that God has put thought even into the things he's going to do for us in eternity. And it's that personal attention that he's giving us. Now, again, how many millions of people are going to be in heaven and yet he's going to take time to give all of us that personal attention when he gives us the hidden manna, the white stone, the new name, and all that cool stuff. And again, I'm not going to... Because a lot. If, if you read about this stuff, a lot of people get off into a lot of unbiblical stuff about, well, the hidden manna means this, and the, and the, you know, the white stone means this. And I'm like... And that's where people get... I think, messed up in the book of Revelation. There are things in the book of Revelation that we really don't know what it means because God hasn't told us yet what it means. Just like the new name, he says, I'm going to give you a new name that no one can understand except the one who receives it, but I haven't given it to you yet, so you're going to have to wait till you get there to find out what it is. So again, there's some things that he's telling us in Revelation, but he hasn't told us the whole picture yet, and we've just got to leave it at that. Okay? we just Because if, if you start speculating, then you get off into some of these weird, again, this, this weird doctrine and stuff that just, and you wouldn't believe what some people think the white stone and the hidden man are. I'm telling you, it's just really out there. And I'm like, where did you get that from? Because it's not in the Bible anywhere. You know, and that's where that symbolism can tend to really, my thing is this, if God gives us a good reason why we should interpret something one way, that's great after we compare scripture with scripture. And the old, the best interpretive uh, 
principle is if it makes sense, seek no further sense. Okay? But then there's times where it, there is no more than just that. And therefore we should just leave it at that and let it go and wait till we get to heaven to find out where he's hidden the manna. You know, maybe it's one of the, I don't know. I mean, we know what the manna was in the Old Testament, but this hidden manna, you know, I have no idea. I honestly have no idea. And if you do, that's great. Tell me, because I, I want to know. I don't know what it is. All right. Before we go on to the church at Thyatira, any thoughts, questions? That was the quickest way we ever moved through. Yes, yes, two questions. This whole idea of false teachings, it, it's just amazing to me how many different religions there are in this world that all believe that they're the right religion. And I know the Bible is the authority, but we're all looking at the same Bible, and there's still so many different interpretations. Yeah, different interpretations, although I will say this, world religion's a little bit different in that a lot of the world religions aren't based upon the Bible. But there are a lot of different denominations and, and uh, say, even within what we would call Christendom that do take different interpretations of the Bible. And that's why, to be very honest with you, if, I think it's an important verse to go back to. If you go back to 2 Timothy, to that passage we were at earlier, 2 Timothy chapter 2, let me show you this, because this is really important. This is why there are so many different interpretations. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells us something. And let me just say this, and I'm not, I'm not here attacking any particular denomination at all, because okay, this is across the board. Because I'll just be, I've been in Baptist churches that don't open up the Bible. Okay? So I'm not attacking any particular denomination when I say this, but to me, a red flag goes up if I go into a local church and a pastor stands up and, and, and the Bible's never open. You know? Or if you're sitting there and you're listening to this guy or this gal, and all they're doing is giving you their opinion about it, rather than referencing, again, the Word of God. Again, it goes back to, I don't care what I believe. I don't care what some other person's opinion is. I want to know what God says. And I'll be very honest with you. I think that's one of the reasons why Cornerstone is being blessed by God and why God is continuing to bring, bring people to Cornerstone in droves because it's, a, it's two things. It shows that there are people out there in this world who truly are hungry to hear what God has to say. They're tired of hearing what man has to say. They want to hear what God has to say. And fortunately, from the very beginning of this church, when you know Pastor Lynn and others started, it was like, you know what, the foundation, and he's been unapologetic about this for 10 years, is going to be the Word of God. You know, Well, to me, that just fits hand because there's so many people out there today who want to hear what God has to say, not what man has to say. Now, to get back to this whole thing about different interpretations, notice in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, that verse right before the passage we started to look at, that's why Paul says to Timothy, this young pastor, make every effort to present yourself before God as a proven worker who does not need to be ashamed because you are teaching the message of truth accurately. Or, literally in the Greek, it means you are cutting the passage straight. And all I would say to answer your question is this. I just believe that there's a lot of men and a lot of women out there who are not cutting the passage straight. They're going into the passage, like I even said earlier, it's a proof text. This is what I was told to believe. And I'm going to go to the Bible, and I'm going to find verses that back up what I believe. Well, listen, you could go to the Bible to prove about anything, okay, if you want to, okay? But that's not what it's all about. It's about going to the Bible. It's about 
interpreting the Bible correctly, and how do we do that? Well, one of the things is we look at the context. We look at the verses that precede it. We look at the verses after it. And see, a lot of, a lot of false teaching and a lot of denominational differences come back to not cutting it straight, not finding out what the original Greek and Hebrew meant, studying it a little bit, or they, they're not getting to the point where they're referencing it with the verses that are before and the verses after it to find out what it means in its context. They're pulling it out of context, and therefore it becomes what we call a pretext. It is a verse that's taken out of its context, just like if you and I were to, you know how sometimes people get irritated, uh, they, they've, they've made a speech, a three or four page speech, and some reporter or something takes one sentence out of that speech and throws it on the news and says, listen what they said. And then they interview and say, well, well that's not what I said. You, you've got to hear the whole speech. You've got to see it in its context. It sounds totally different when you pull that one sentence out and you just read that one sentence. It sounds like this, but if you read it in the whole context, it makes a completely different meaning. Well, that's what happens with the Bible. People pull one verse out of somewhere, and they say, well, that's what the Bible teaches, but they're not looking at it. And let me just give you an example, okay? And I'm not going to, I'm just telling you this is what the Bible said, okay? I may step on some toes here tonight, but I'm just telling you, this is cutting it straight. There's a lot of, because we're going back to this denominational thing and stuff and differences, and I'll just give you an easy one. <coughs> baptism. Baptism. My friends, baptism. The word baptizo in the Greek, clearly, if you study it, means immersion. It does not mean to sprinkle. In fact, if you really don't take my word for it, go to a Greek Orthodox church. If anybody knows what the Greek means, it's the Greeks. And in the Greek Orthodox church, guess what they do when they baptize somebody? They don't sprinkle them. They immerse them because they know what the word baptizo means. That's cutting it straight. So I would simply say that, yeah, there are denominations that say, now that's a Baptist thing. You, you Baptist baptize. No, no, no. There are other. I, I didn't grow up Baptist, okay? I grew up in the Church of the Brethren. But we baptized by immersion because, again, we were trying to cut the Bible straight. The word baptizo does not mean to sprinkle. It means to immerse. It is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ where you go down into the water and you die with Christ and you come back up out of the water and you're raised in newness of life. So that's part of where the differences come from. They're not looking at the Greek and the Hebrew. They're not studying it correctly. They're not looking at it in its context. And so you have all these differences of opinion. But if people would just go back to the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself and study it for itself, I think it would be very clear. You had it, and then, and then back to you. Yeah, Christian. Um, the different churches that are in here, that's kind of like the same question. Were they kind of like different denominations, or were they just different cities? Were they all Christian-based churches, or were they some Mormon and some in the different types of religions? Or? No, I think they were all, I think they were all Christian churches. Uh, I think they were just at all different levels of where they were with Christ. Yeah. Uh, mostly, like you hit the nail right now, I think they were in different locations, but as I shared a couple weeks ago, I think they were representative of the church down through the ages and that the message that Christ gives to them 
would be a message that is applicable and relevant to all churches throughout history because all of, all churches struggle pretty much with the same things ever since the beginning. Just like we as human beings pretty much struggle with the same things that they did since Adam and Eve. You know, man's no different, and so the church is really no different. It's going to struggle with the same things. But that's a good question. Yes? Back to baptism. So if you were sprinkled, does it not count then? Well, let me just say, if you want to do things the way the Bible would say it, I'd say no. Now, is that going to keep you out of heaven or anybody out of heaven that was sprinkled? No, because why? Because, again, the Bible teaches that baptism is not part of salvation. That would make it a work, and we do not work our way to heaven. The only requirement to get to heaven is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, faith in him. The thief on the cross was never baptized, but Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So all I'm saying is, baptism... Now, here's what I tell people. Because I have a lot of people who say, well, I was baptized when I was a child, but I wasn't really had a personal relationship with Christ. And the Bible, the pattern in the Bible is saved, baptized, added to the church. That's what you see. Saved, baptized, added to the church. So I tell them, I said, look, I'm not telling you that you have to be rebaptized, but I'm certainly not discouraging you from doing it. And I've done many rebaptisms of people who were baptized. As an infant, then they got saved, and they wanted to be baptized because they wanted to do it the biblical way, in a sense, you know? Or they were sprinkled, and they say, well, you know, not that that's going to keep me out of heaven, but I would like to be immersed. I would like to be baptized the way Christ was baptized. He was immersed by John the Baptist. Fine, go ahead and be re- Not a problem. But again, that's not something that, you know, I think that's between the person and God, okay? Uh, that's not something that I would come along and say, you know, again, because it's not going to keep you out of heaven. Because baptism is not part of salvation. But yeah, if you're asking me, what's the Bible teach? It's by immersion, and it's after salvation. So if it was different than that, and you want to do it right, yeah, I would say be rebaptized. Question? Um, you were reading about the chapter 15 and the Timothy. Just a little blurb on the side of my Bible. I just like it. It's just like, can we earn God's approval? It says no, but we can do our best to allow God's work to show in our lives. And then at the end, it says, what we are on the inside is recognized by the evidence we produce on the outside. Yeah. So true. And that's, that's great, because that goes along with that church at Pergamum, where he says, you guys are claiming to be followers of Christ, and you're involved in all this immorality and all this junk, and, and it's not like they had to be, because like he told them, there's a few of you there that even in the midst of this satanic stronghold, you're clinging to my name, you're remaining faithful, so it's not like it's impossible, it's not like it can't be done. You know, it's not like we can, you know, say with Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. You know, we can't say that. <laughs> you know, you cannot say that. I know, I'm dating myself. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you can't say that. I mean, the Bible clearly says there, if we want to cut it straight, that once we have Christ in our life, we don't have to give in to sin. We do, but we don't have to because we have a power now within us that's going to enable us to rise above sin. It's only that when we give in to sin and the temptation that, you know, we don't have to. Romans <coughs> chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, those are two great chapters that deal with that. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. That's what we want to do. We want to cut it straight in here in the mind, okay? That's what we're trying to do. We want to get to the heart of it. So let's go on to chapter 2, verse 18 of Revelation. And we'll cut it straight for about 20 more minutes. You'll notice there to the... I'm getting hot. Are you all hot? Yeah. yeah. Could, we, could we flip on the air? Yeah. I'm about ready to burn up in here. Hi-ya, hi-ya, hi-ya. 
I know we're we're in Satan's stronghold here tonight, but that's ridiculous. All right. Yeah, getting a little warm. So to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the following. This is a solemn pronouncement of the Son of God, the one who has eyes like a fiery flame and whose feet are like polished bronze. Now again, he's always describing himself a way that's pertinent or relevant to the church that he's writing to as well. And one of the things about the Thyatira, the city of Thyatira, was a city uh, that was known for its trade guilds, or what we would say is maybe unions, okay? Uh, and uh, one of the things that they were known for was their polished metals. And so I don't think it's any accident that Jesus describes himself as, again, one who has eyes like a fiery flame. He's got this penetrating, uh, he, he knows what's going on in the church. He's got the penetrating vision, and his feet are like polished bronze. Now, notice verse 19. Here's his commendation for the church at Thyatira. Thank you, Johnny. I know your deeds, your love, faith, service, and steadfast endurance. In fact, your more recent deeds are greater than your earlier ones. Well, here's a, here's a great verse. One I want to just camp on for a, a, just a second tonight. First of all, the thing that Jesus is commending them for, first of all, is their love. And, and this is interesting. This is the only church out of the seven that he commends for their love. And the neat thing is, it's the very first in the list, which is no accident. Because really, the way it should flow in a local church is that everything should flow out of love. Love should be the motivation for everything. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul said? He said, you could have the greatest spiritual gifts, and you could speak in tongues, and you could prophesy this. And he said, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. He says, you could give your body to be burned, and you could be a martyr like Antipas. But if you don't have love, if love is not the motivation behind it, and I don't think it's just love for God, I think it's love for others. I think it's just love being the motive. Then it's nothing. It's God wants us to do things because we love Him and we truly love others. And that's what was present here in Thyatira. That's what He's commending them for. They started the right way. They started out with love. And then their love led to that faith. And really, we've got to think about that too because... All ministry that we do, all service that we do, is really a ministry and service of faith. Why? Because most of the time, we're not going to get immediate results back for what we do. And yet we live in a culture, and we live in America, where you know, we're that microwave generation where, you know, what, what can you do for me now? We want to see it now. But a lot of times, ministry and and you know, all of that. Serving God is not necessarily, I do something for God one day, and I see the results the very next day. That's where faith comes in. You see, that's why God sort of compares us sometimes to a farmer who sows the seed in one season, but doesn't necessarily reap the crop until another season. And that's true in our Christian life as well. We may sow in the spring, but we may not reap until the summer or the fall. So the investment that you make in somebody's life You've got to understand that you've got to do that by faith. You may not see immediate results, but that doesn't mean God may not want you to continue to try to minister and, and, and work with them or whatever. Because again, you might not see the results for months. It's like, say for me, with being a teacher of God's Word. I don't necessarily teach a message one day and then see the results of it the very next day from somebody in their life. But I have gotten letters from people years later who said, do you remember that message you preached on? And first of all, I said, no, I don't remember. You know, they remember, but I don't remember. I don't even remember the message. Well, that message meant so much to me, and I just went, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, and that message 
couple years ago, I was going through this, and, and God brought that message to my heart, and I just want you to know that message meant a lot to me. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that was like a couple years ago. But that's the way it happens, you know. So that's why faith is important in serving the Lord. Because we're not always going to, you know, all that you guys are involved with at the church and in people's lives and whatever, what we've got to realize is it's by faith. It's by faith. We do what we, God wants us to do, and we let the results up to Him. And, and don't get discouraged whenever you don't see a bunch of results and whatever. Because remember, we just, we're just to be who we need to be, and we're just to do what God wants us to do, and the results are up to Him. The results are not up to us. You know, that, that's not what it's about. God just wants me to be faithful to Him and me to present His Word faithfully and cut it straight, and then the results are out of my hands. And that's the way it is with all of us. So that's where faith comes in. And then He goes on to say, your service. Your service that is born out of love and faith and your steadfast endurance or perseverance. And then I like the fact that He says, you know, in the midst of this unbelievable mess in Thyatira, you still have some people there who are progressing, sort of going back to the church at Pergamum. They're in the midst of this satanic stronghold, and yet there are some who are still clinging to the name of Christ. Well, he says here in Thyatira, there's an unbelievable mess going on in the church at Thyatira. We're going to get to that in just a moment. I know you don't, you don't see that yet. But there's an unbelievable mess going on, and yet there's this remnant, this group of people in Thyatira who are actually doing better now than they were before. They're, they're making progress in the midst of this unbelievable mess, which again goes back to the fact that the principle of the Christian life is not escape, it is endurance, and it's conquest by faith. Now notice the mess. The mess is this. Going back to false teaching again, verse 20. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and by her teaching is deceiving my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, couple things. One, you'll notice there they weren't act active the, the people that he's talking to weren't actively teaching false doctrine. Notice though they were tolerating it. Guess what? We don't need to actively teach or promote error to come under Christ's correction. If we tolerate error he's going to correct us. It, it goes back to the thing, if I see something wrong and I don't do anything about it, Jesus says, uh, wait a minute your response if you tolerate that that's just as bad as teaching it. And what he was trying to tell the church in Thyatira was, this group of people who are faithful to me, you've got to rise up against these false teachers and say, whoa, 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 I'm not going to let you teach that in this church. It's wrong. It is causing problems, you see. So Christ is saying, we're responding. You know, if somebody got up, you know, started teaching something that wasn't right, it, it's our responsibility to say, whoa, that's not right. That's going to cause problems. And so that's very important. He doesn't say that they were actively teaching, but he does say they were tolerating it. And that's just as important. Then here's another thing. Notice this false prophetess called here Jezebel. Here's a key. Notice she calls herself a prophetess. You want to know how you can sort of pick up a lot of times on the false prophets and the false prophetesses? <laughs> They're self-proclaimed. In other words, they'll get up on television or radio or whatever and say, I'm so-and-so and you need to listen to me. That's a red flag right there. You see, the Bible teaches that if, if we are teachers of the Word of God, that won't be confirmed by us. We don't have to get up and say, I'm a teacher of the Word of God, you need to listen to me. No. 
The Bible says that if we have the gift of teaching the Word of God, that will be confirmed by the people who hear us. In other words, the church will confirm, you know what, you've got the gift of teaching. That's the check and balance there. So somebody just can't get up in a church and say, hey, I've got, I'm a prophet and you need to listen to me. Whoa, 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 that's bad. And that's what you see today. You see all these self-proclaimed, you know, this and that, and you need to listen to me. That's what she was, Jezebel. I'm a prophetess and you need to listen to me. I have some revelation from God and, and you know, you need to hear this. And Whoa, that wasn't right. And so that's a very important sort of red flag there. You got to watch. That's why these cult leaders... I mean, these leaders of cults, you know, the David Koresh's and people like that of the world, you know, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, follow me. It's like, whoa, 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 you know. First of all, Christ had all these fulfilled prophecies. There was all this proof that he was the Messiah. I mean, like he said, the Spirit of God is testifying. My Father is testifying. I mean, it wasn't even, he even said, I'm not just the one getting up and doing it. John the Baptist, his forerunner, said, behold, the Lamb of God. I mean, there were so many more things going on there, okay? Where these cult leaders get up and say, you know, I'm the Christ, follow me, I'm the Messiah. And you know what's amazing to me? It's not that we have those people. Because the Bible says we're always going to have those kind of people. It's that people follow those people. I just, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, how do you do that? You know, it's sad. And you know what's sad? Yeah, I'll get... You know what's sad? If you go into research, I used to be a deprogrammer of people out of cults. I think I shared that with you before. Um, one of the sad things is that 90 to 95% of people who get caught up in cults have a very strong religious background. Many of them in Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Catholic, you know, church upbringings. They were brought up in the church. <laughs> But my goodness, it, there was a misconnection there somewhere because then they, they get led away by these cult leaders and end up killing themselves with Kool-Aid or something because the cult leader said, this is what we need to do. You know, It's like, it's, it's not these people who have no you know, foundation in the Bible in their life. They had, you know, many of these people actually come from what we would call Christian homes who are in cults. That's a really sad thing. Yeah, yeah, and then... I was up the night I couldn't sleep and I was watching Benny Hinn and I, I was trying to figure out, I wanted to listen to what he was saying and trying to figure out where I could see that he's going wrong because a lot of what he said seems to be coming from the Bible but one thing I did catch in, is that when he's announcing all of his tour around the world that he's going to be doing he has particular dates set up where he announces that we'll be doing healing at this one location and the healing at this location and healing at this location but not these other ones and just from my standpoint I don't think power of God, he's going to have at that moment to heal people or whatever. And, and, uh, this sounds like the, the, the Bible study on Wednesday morning I'm doing with the ladies in the book of Acts, because I'll just say this, okay, and I'm not, I'm not going to pick on Benny Hinn or anybody else, but to follow up your question real quick, let me just say this, because I shared this with the ladies last Wednesday. If you want to cut it straight, okay, first of all, I believe that God, our God can heal anybody of anything at any time. But the gift of healing was, I believe, according to the Bible, a temporary gift given to just the apostles until the church was on its feet and the Bible was completed and it is no longer a gift today. So that a man or a woman does not have the gift of healing. And let me 
go further and tell you why. Okay, hang in there before you go, wait a minute, I don't believe that. Everybody in the Bible who had the gift of healing, like Peter, like Paul, part of that gift, it was one and the same gift, could also raise people from the dead. And you don't see anybody claiming to be able to raise people from the dead. It's the same gift. You do not find anybody in the Bible who had the gift of being able to go up and by touching them or whatever to heal them who also did not have the ability to raise people from the dead. It's one and the same gift, you see. In the book of, later on, after the book of Acts, because again, I'm te- Acts is a transitional book. You cannot base how God works simply on the book of Acts. It's a transitional book from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And later on in the book, in, in the books of the New Testament, you find Paul who had the gift of healing, who said, Timothy, I can't heal you. You're going to have to take a little wine for your stomach problem. Or he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 about his friend Trophimus, he says, I left Trophimus at Miletus sick. He could not heal Trophimus anymore because that gift that he had been given for that amount of time had passed off. And you never see from the book of Romans through the book of Revelation anybody being healed by anybody. After the book of Acts, that's it. From Romans through Revelation, you never see that gift ever again. Now again, there's good people that disagree with me, but I'm just telling you, if that's the way I've cut it, that's the way I'm looking at it, and I think I can, you know, back that up with scripture, you know. Uh, Other people can do the same, but that's where I'm coming from on the whole, you know. I don't use names, though, because I I teach the word, I'll let you make the application the way you want to. (laughs) All right, question over here. No, but I I was just going to comment on the fact that, you know, you talk about Catholics went along or whatever. Catholics were really not educated in the Bible anyhow. You know, we went through college, you know, and weren't really educated in the Bible. They didn't really promote Bible study and so forth, which is one of the sad things. Right. They're doing a better job now, but not before. Right. And that's so, it's so important that, you know, we open up the Bible ourselves and we get into it and we study it. Yes. Yes. I just wanted to follow up that story about that only God is the one that heals um, and not going out to a healing event or something, that a friend of mine, his father, about six months ago, was diagnosed with lung cancer. And he smoked cigarettes and some other bad stuff. And he went in and went in to remove part of his lung lobe, and they couldn't because the tumor was so aggressively wrapped around arteries and just horrible, and they gave him like three months to live. And during this time, he decided to do chemo to extend his life for his family. He found Jesus, or you right. know, he got he came to the Lord, and just started going out. And you know, today he's completely in remission. Hmm. Wow. And so, I mean, that was only God that could have done that. Oh yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's a miracle. There's nothing there. Right now, I will so. say this: I have talked to some dear friends of mine who say, "But Pastor, I was healed by so and so or whatever." But my answer to that is, if you read the Bible, you find out that the Bible says of itself, in fact, Peter says this, he says, you cannot rank experience above the Word. In other words, the Word of God trumps everything. So that you cannot say, well, because I had this experience, that makes it true. Experience does not trump the Word of God. The example of that is when Peter says, we beheld His glory. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw Jesus' glory. 
But he goes on to say in that very same passage, these words, we have a more sure word than the experience that we have. And it's the word of God. In other words, what Peter is saying is, the word of God trumps even my experience. In other words, I can't just base my belief of Christ on that experience that I had or that I didn't have. I've got to funnel everything through the word of God. And the reason that is true is because, let's face it, we all start saying, well, my experience trumps the word of God. What's that going to lead to? That's going to lead to total subjectivity and anarchy. The word of God has to be the funnel through which everything is taken, not my experiences. Because our experiences can be deceiving. The word of God is not deceiving in any way. And that's where we have to be careful. Remember, the Antichrist is going to use healing, miracles, powers, and all these things to dupe people in the revelation, in the tribulation, to become followers of him. And part of that is going to be people are going to say, well, he couldn't do that unless God was with him. And so they follow the Antichrist. Right in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that the Antichrist is going to deceive people by all these lying wonders, these miracles, these supernatural abilities, and people are going to fall down and worship him because of this miracle-working power. But that miracle-working power doesn't mean it came from God. There's, there's other powers at work here that we've got to be careful of, you see. But even in the Bible, didn't they call him Jehovah, um, Jehovah Rafi, Jehovah Jireh? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who heals. Yeah, yeah, the healing Lord. Right. So if that's, he's our healer and our comforter. Exactly. Wouldn't you expect that God is a healer? Exactly. And like I said, he can give us spiritual healing, physical healing, emotional healing, anytime, anywhere, any place. He is not limited. But all I'm saying is that I believe that he does not place that gift of healing that you find in the Bible on somebody today who we need to go see them in order to be healed. That's okay. all I'm saying. But do you believe that in a moment of prayer that the oh. power of the Spirit could come yeah. down through you praying for somebody? Oh, yeah. Somebody could be oh, yeah. We pray for people to be healed all the time. and it oh. Can, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, that's totally, yes. Yeah. Um, Benny Hinn always says... It's God that did the healing, not me. He always says that. God healed this person, mm-hmm. not me. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I'm already on the spot. <laughs> In the chair. You wouldn't mind commenting your thoughts about the woman. I'll be very honest with you. I'll be very honest with you. I don't know that much about the Mormon religion at all. You have to understand where I came from back east in the Maryland area where I grew up and whatever, that hardly exists back there. And so I never had any contact with anybody, you know, Latter-day Saint at all in my whole life. In fact, I did not know until I moved out here <laughs> that, that this area was, had a lot of, you know, Mormon churches. I, I didn't know. I, I, you know, just again, in my ignorance from being back east all my life, I just sort of, again, in my ignorance, I thought they all lived around the Utah Salt Lake City area. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I, I, I did not know that, that Arizona had such a, a prevalence. So I would be totally... You know, I will say this. I don't care what religion or whatever you're talking about. If they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only way to heaven, you know, 
yada, 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 then they're, they're off base. You know, again, they have to line up with what the Bible says completely, and if they don't, then they're, they're off track at some point. But to know where that track is for me, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't. Uh, just a book that you could read is called Out of Mormonism, and it was written by a bishop's wife um, who was um, into the Mormon church and went through going to the temple and all the, 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 the religious acts and everything and tells why in the end they realized that it was a cult and how to get out of it. It's called Out of Mormonism. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I need to read it. That's what I need to read. I'll bring you a copy. Yeah. I'll bring you a copy. I got a copy of the house. It's different. Hey, a couple more things, and then I want to wrap it up tonight. If you go back to Revelation chapter 2, I want you to see something here in verse 21. It's very important, and then we're going we're gonna to look at it to begin with next week, Lord willing. You'll notice God's mercy and grace in verse 21. When he says, I have given this prophetess and those who are following her time to repent. You see, God, I believe, gives anyone who's gone down the wrong path time to repent. That's his grace and mercy. But notice here, notice what verse 21 says. She is not willing to... Now, what this teaches us is a very, very important principle. We often assume that lack of repentance on somebody's part indicates a lack of understanding or the knowledge of evil. In other words, well, the reason they're not turning their life around and repenting is simply because they don't know any better. One of the things the Bible teaches very clearly, especially in the book of Revelation, is that lack of repentance has less to do with the head and more to do with the heart which is hardened toward God. That's very important. It's not, according to the Bible again, I'm just telling you what God's Word says, it's not that people don't know what they're doing is wrong. It's that they don't want to quit doing what they know is wrong. And that's very key. It doesn't say she didn't know what she was doing was wrong, and that's why she didn't. It says she was unwilling to repent. And you're going to see this starting now, you're going to see this pattern throughout the book of Revelation, which is real key, because when we start getting into all the judgments and stuff, people start to say, well, how, how could God do that? Listen, he gave all those people plenty of time to repent. They knew who he was. If you read on in the book of Revelation, you find out when the judgments are coming that they even know where it's coming from. They acknowledge that the judgments are coming from God's throne, and they know what they could do to, to avoid it. And they don't do it. Not because they don't know what to do up here. It's here. It's here. They're unwilling. And that's, what, that's the key. That's why I always pray, Father, keep our hearts soft and pliable. Give us a teachable spirit. Help us to, to allow the Word of God to penetrate. Because it does no good to hear the truth if I have such a hardened heart. And that's what Jesus talking about the parable of the soils when... <laughs> They spread the, 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 the seed. Some of that seed, in fact, three of the four seeds don't even get through because it falls on stony, hard ground that won't penetrate. And we've got to be careful of that. She and her followers were unwilling to repent. They knew what they were doing was wrong, but they did not want to give up their sin. Okay? And that's so key because that, that changes our perspective a little bit. People have this perspective 
of God in the book of Revelation that he's this unloving, wrathful, evil God who's just pouring his wrath down on the world. And how could he be that way? And you've got to understand, you've got to see the other side of it. The other side is he's given these people plenty of time to repent. And they are unwilling to repent. It's not that they can't repent. It's not that they don't know what they should do. It's that they don't want to do it. And that makes all the difference in the world. That changes the perspective. Yes? How do you um, pray for people that have a heart like that? I mean, is it God that changes their heart? Yeah. To... Yeah. Only God can change a heart. Yeah. I mean, if God can change their heart, then why not he change everybody's heart? Well, again, he, he's looking for that opening to change. In other words, we've got to take that step first and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm open to that. I'm, I'm willing to hear what you have to say. As long as we're closed-minded and closed-hearted, no, he's not going to force his way in. But we can pray that God would bring about circumstances or something in their life that may get them to a point where they would be willing to listen. Um, and that maybe God would give us an opportunity to, in some way, tell them the truth and that they would be more willing to hear it then than they were you know, a time ago. Um, in fact, if, if I could share with you, and then we'll close, because we got technically five minutes, although I don't like that. But go back to, because that's a good question. Second Timothy. Go back to Second Timothy again. Just seems like this is... Um, let's start in verse 23. In fact, this is why you will find that I don't name names, and I don't, I'm not going to argue with you in this, because the Bible teaches me as a teacher of the Word to not enter into arguments with people about things. That's not edifying, that's not biblical, that's not the way Christ would have it. I'm supposed to share the truth, and then, at least the way I see it, and then let it go at that, okay? Notice what it says here, though, in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, verse 23. Reject foolish and ignorant controversies. Because all they do is breed infighting. And that's not what it's about. It's about, God wants to see his people unified. And the Lord's slave or servant must not engage in heated disputes. That's why I don't get in heated arguments about people, about the Bible or God or anything. If they want to hear, I'll certainly talk to them. But I'm not going to cram it down their throat and and get into an argument about it, because the Bible says don't do that. In fact, the Bible goes on to say, if I'm a teacher, I'm trying to share the word, here's how I do it. I am kind toward all. An apt teacher, which means somebody who knows what you believe and why you believe it. You've done your homework. You've done your study. But then notice this. Patient. Sometimes I need to share the word over and over again before finally the light bulb comes on. Correcting opponents. It's okay to correct people who, who oppose you, but do it, notice, with gentleness. There again, that, that whole concept of how we do it is so important. Why? And here's the key, going back to only God can change a heart. Because notice he doesn't say that my, my wisdom and, and my intellect and my cool arguments are going to change. No, he says, perhaps, perhaps, and that goes back to the free will, perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap where they are held captive to do his will. In other words, if there's an opening there, then God will change their heart, but it's going to have to be the work of God. It can't be me. You know, it's not me. I can be who I need to be, and I can share the truth with them, and if I do it in a loving, patient, gentle way, that'll help. But ultimately, only God can change their heart. 
Yeah, but that's a great, great cause. And we just need to keep praying for people like that and hope that their heart gets to the point where they're teachable. I'll, I'll say this. I have been around people all my life who were clothed to God. They didn't want anything to do with God. And then one day, they knocked on my office and said, I'd like to hear about that God now. You know, and that's the way it is sometimes. So keep, don't give up. Keep praying. Keep, keep being who you need to be. And you never know. Sometimes it just, boom, something comes into their life and some. You know, maybe some of you, you know, because that's you, you know. You went for years and didn't really want to hear the truth or know the truth, and there came a point where whether you came to Cornerstone or whatever, and now, boy, you accept it, and that's the way it works sometimes. So, yeah, good stuff. Well, guys, you guys are great. You guys are just <laughs> awesome. I just, I wish I could give you all a hug, okay? Group hug. Group, group hug, hug group yeah. <laughs> Thank you all. Let's close in prayer, and I'm looking forward to next week already. Maybe you'll come back Thursday night. No, I'm just teasing. I know you guys have a life. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for your word. And, and I do pray, Lord, that we know that all of us aren't going to see eye to eye on everything in this class. I, we understand that. We, we pray that, that what we disagree on, we would do it agreeably. And that we recognize we have a stronger bond in Christ than what may separate us uh, by not seeing every little thing the same. But, Father, I do pray that all of us would have that desire, like 2 Timothy 2.15 says, to make sure that we are cutting the Word of God straight, to make sure that we are interpreting the Bible properly, and that we are recognizing and acknowledging the sufficiency of the Bible above everything else, that it is the Word of God that trumps everything else that we come in contact with. Help us, Lord, to to obtain our theology and our doctrine and our philosophy and our way of thinking from the Bible and not the other way around. And Lord, I just thank you for each and every person here tonight who is, by their presence here, they're saying that you are important to them and that the study of your word is important to them. And I pray that you would continue to bless them, encourage them, refresh them through your word, and help us all to grow in our understanding of your word and how this all fits together in such a wonderful way. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're Thank great. You.